turnout tonight, I'm really happy to see you all. Uh, if you don't know me, you may, you may not. My name is Sarah Topekian. I'm the outreach staff member here at St. Andrews. I've been in a few roles, but now I'm in outreach. And I am so pleased to welcome Lauren Weinhold here from Jewish Vocational Service. She's the Chief External Affairs Officer, so it's really amazing that she would come tonight to give us her uh, presentation. She'll be talking a lot about the work of JVS and more than that, the modern refugee experience, which I think really shapes a lot of their work is just what people are going through. So I'm excited to hear about that. We got connected with JVS because we, a few years ago, started a collection to support Afghan refugees. I know that was in the news a lot and we really wanted to support we did not end up working with the church we thought we would work with, so we still had funds left over, and we really wanted to find a good use for those funds. So I reached out to JVS, I met Lauren, I was so impressed, I got Susan involved, we went, we toured, we were so impressed. And I'm really happy to say that we brought $13,500 to JVS, a check that was given by all the people of St. Andrews who contributed originally, and that money was matched dollar for dollar before the end of the year. So that's $27,000 of support we were able to offer. Um, before we get started, I would like us to just get centered for a moment. And I just want to tell a little bit about how I think about all of this. So I often share with people who know me well that my grandfather was born a refugee in Armenia. He had quite a life and ended up coming through Ellis Island at a pretty young age. And something I find myself reflecting on a lot is what he must have been thinking as a child on this journey and what he must have been thinking as a new American on his journey and what his hopes for the future might have been and what his hopes for his descendants might have been. And there are days that I just think, for example, I'm driving this check over to this refugee organization that has a comma in it, that I am a dream of his sort of embodied. Um, and that's just so touching to me. So as Lauren gives this presentation, I would hope that when we're looking at the statistics and we're seeing the numbers, we're thinking that all of those numbers are individuals with hopes and dreams and humanity. And just to be really grounded that that money that we gave is having such an impact uh, for a safe, secure future for someone in our city. So I will stop and give it to Lauren, but I hope you'll help me welcome her. Okay, how's that? Does that work? Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, Sarah, your heartfelt and awesome introduction um, makes me feel like I just went to church. So, <laughs> amen, and let's go home. Um, <laughs> no. Um, and as Sarah mentioned, um, you all over the years have been incredibly generous um, with your time, your talent, and your resources, and um, that was doubled uh, last week. So um, on behalf of the, is it is that me? Am I clicking? Do you hear? Is that better? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, nope. 
How about that? Yeah. Okay, yay. Good. Um, I won't move. We'll just stay right here. Um, uh, on behalf of the thousands of um, individuals that we uh, serve and walk alongside every year, um, I can assure you um, that your generous, generous gift, um, it was one of the largest that we received uh, at the end of this year, um, will will help and support hundreds of individuals. So thank you so much uh, from, from everybody at JVS, uh, a heartfelt thank you. I, um, when Sarah called, couple of, what was that, maybe three months ago now, um, that in our work, um, our work is hard. It is hard work, but it is heart work. Um, and I always look for, in every day, a cup fill moment, um, because it's so easy for our cups to be depleted in our service. Uh, and when I got off the phone with Sarah, my cup was overflowing. Um, and then when she brought Susan, uh, my cup was even more overflowing. Um, and I'm gonna try to get through this evening without um, shedding uh, tears of joy and appreciation. So thank you uh, to, to you all. Um, and um, it's a joy to be with you this evening. Um, as Sarah mentioned, I, uh, I'm Lauren. Uh, I don't really care about titles so much, but all that my title means is that I get to do uh, all of our storytelling. So I work with our fundraising team, I work with our volunteer team, and I get to uh, oversee some of our marketing and outreach. Uh, and it is super special for me tonight, four days into the new year, to get to share with you all, for the very first time publicly, um, that 2024 is our 75th anniversary. Um, we were founded in 1949 after World War II. Uh, the Kansas City Jewish community rallied support for and welcomed thousands of Holocaust survivors, global World War II veterans, uh, and other displaced persons uh, after the war. Uh, and 75 years later, that work continues. Um, we welcome and walk alongside, as I mentioned earlier, thousands of individuals this last year, 2023. I think um, we touched 6,500 uh, individuals in, in Kansas City. Uh, and so tonight, what I wanna do, first of all, how many of you are even peripherally familiar with JBS? Okay, okay, great, good, good, good. Um, 14 months ago, I would have been among you that didn't have your hands up. Um, so I appreciate um, those of you in the room that, um, that know a little bit about us. And I hope tonight uh, you'll leave with um, maybe some answers, but hopefully uh, even more curiosity um, about our work uh, and an interest in, in getting engaged uh, in, in whatever way is meaningful to you. Um, so. Our, our mission is to encourage, engage, encourage, and empower newcomers and their families to achieve successful social, cultural, and economic integration. Um, I talked to you about um, our history. Our, um, our value statement is that um, we believe in thriving communities are strengthened by diversity. So um, we, we work to fulfill that, that every day. While we are not officially a religious organization, um, although we have Jewish in our name, um, I, I think if you were to poll all 90 of our staff, they would tell you that in their own unique ways, um, we, are all, we are all living out a tenet of the Jewish faith known as tikkun olam, to heal the world. 
And so we're all doing that in our myriad of ways. I get to do that by being with you all tonight. Sometimes that means picking somebody up from the airport. Sometimes that means sitting with um, a, family, a family member at the hospital. So um, to Kun alum, to heal the world. Um, and thank you for being a part of that. Um, just to do a little level setting, because I think if you watch the news, it's easy to be overwhelmed and confused by all of the all of the terminology that is sometimes used correctly and sometimes not used correctly. So I thought we'd do a little level setting tonight um, so that you maybe have a clearer picture the next time you watch the news. If we think about immigration writ large as an umbrella, the spokes of that umbrella are comprised of different legal statuses. So refugee, asylum seeker, migrant, visa holder, etc. Uh, humanitarian parolee is one of those. At JVS, we work with all the folks in all the spokes. So, so it doesn't matter what anyone's status is. Um, we, we welcomed a young woman um, this past spring uh, who showed up at our door randomly. She was from Nigeria. She had somehow by herself made it to Brazil. And then she somehow made it from Brazil up through the southern border. Uh, and she asked somebody inside the southern border, now that she's in the United States, where should she go? And that person, um, who I, I want to hug, said, uh, you shouldn't stay here, but you should definitely go to the middle of the country. It's known as the Midwest. And specifically, there's this city called Kansas City, Missouri. And you should go there. And she did by herself. And I don't want to think about the, the harrowing journey that she was on, um, but she made it to Kansas City. And uh, by the time she made it to our door, she'd been on the streets for a couple of weeks. Um, so we immediately got her shelter and safety and, and health services and all the things uh, to get her onto a path to wholeness. So we'll work with folks who come in off the street. We also work with uh, legally defined refugees. And so who is a refugee? What is a refugee? The term refugee um, was, was made in 1951 by the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. Um, as someone who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion, is outside the country of their nationality, that's an important distinction, and is unable to, or owing to such fear, is willing to avail themselves of the protections of that country. So that's who a refugee is. Um, and for the purposes of our conversation tonight, I'm going to focus on refugees. Um, I, I welcome any questions you have about any of those other spokes. Uh, and we'll talk about them a little bit. But for the purposes of, of tonight, um, I really want to focus on um, the majority of our work that's centered around refugee resettlement. So a refugee, again, a person who has left their country of origin. So someone who lives in Tanzania, who leaves their community and moves to another community in Tanzania is not a refugee. They are a, a migrant within their own country. Um, a person who leaves um, the Democratic Republic of Congo and goes to Tanzania is then a refugee, someone who applies um, for the legal, has left their country of origin and applies with the United Nations uh, to, to become a legal refugee. So their journey um, is much 
much more uh, involved than these three steps, but this is a great overview. So they've left their home, they've gone to a secondary country, um, and this is sometimes many years. We'll talk about this sometimes many years in just a minute. Um, and then the final leg of that journey is to be resettled into their, um, their new home. Um, just some, I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you tonight. Um, this is a 2023, no, 2022 statistic. So it's, it's arguably higher than this today. Um, but as of the time of, of, um, this report, there are 35.3 million refugees globally. Um, that I'm a visual person. And so that is somewhere between the entire population of Australia and the entire population of Canada. Um, we'll throw some more statistics at you. Um, less than 1% of that 35.3 ever make it to a third country. Less than 1% of 35.3 million. So um, globally, um, there are far more refugees living in camps and in um, dire situations than are ever coming to Canada, Australia, the United States, etc. Um, I, I want to focus on the, the, the third line here. Um, resettlement in the United States in 2021 uh, the U.S. welcomed 11,000 refugees. In 2022, uh, we, as a country, welcomed 25,000. In 2023, the number, the final number isn't out yet, but it's somewhere around 67 and a half uh, thousand. Uh, and the federal government has uh, indicated that their goal for 2024 in the United States is 125,000. Um, I will tell you that the goal since 2021 has been 125,000. So the ceiling has not gone up. The number of refugees that the country has been able to, to resettle has slowly. Um, and I, I am traditionally an optimistic person, um, but I'm also a realist. I, I think getting to 125,000 this year is probably a long shot. We're probably gonna be somewhere in the 90 to 100,000 um, range, um, if, I was to, if I was to try to guess. Um, then let's focus on this last bullet. Um, when I was talking about the, the, for so many years, for you know, quite a few years, the average amount of time that a refugee is in that secondary situation, whether that's a camp or it can even be in an urban setting, which is not necessarily any better. Um, the average length of time that a refugee is displaced before, um, in our case, coming to America is around 17 years. Um, I have colleagues at JVS who were born in refugee camps, whose parents are from Burma, um, and she was born in Thailand, and she's never been to Burma, um, and she is not technically Burmese. Um, and when a refugee is born in a camp or, or even in an urban setting, they are not a citizen of that country. They are stateless, um, technically homeless. Um, so uh, that colleague that I was just uh, mentioning, she is now uh, an American, um, and she, she claims that proudly. Uh, but 17 years. So um, there are... Um, there are a couple of options throughout that journey. Um, I, I think it is, I have not been a refugee, and so I don't wanna speak as if I am, 
Um, but I can imagine that many refugees ultimately have a desire to return to home. Who wouldn't? If you left the home that you love, the home that you were born in, you left all of your earthly belongings there, it would be natural to want to return there. The reality of that is slim to none. That rarely happens. Um, and um, as we think about modern day populations, um, Sarah was mentioning um, the Afghan population. I, I think if you were to, again, poll um, the, the 700 or so Afghans that are in Kansas City, they would tell you that while they want to go home, they know they will never go home to Afghanistan. Um, but I think if you were to poll um, the Ukrainians that Kansas City has welcomed, there is a strong desire um, and a hope that they can someday return home. So, um, so repatriation is, is um, I think, top of mind um, for lots of, lots of refugees. Um, certainly then in that secondary country, um, because again, remember, less than 1% ever make it to that third country. So a majority of folks are living in that, in that local integration. They become integrated in the community that they, um, that they have, have fled to. Um, and then a, a very small percentage uh, make it to a third country. Uh, this is really small print and we won't, I won't belabor all of it, but for the United States, if someone is in a refugee camp and says, I want to, I, I want to I move, I want to become a citizen of the United States, then um, the State Department um, works with that person or family um, and runs through an 11 point screening process. So these are health examinations, these are security clearances, um, these are medical screenings, and the average amount of time that this process alone takes is 18 months to three years. So none of this is quick. I, I don't know about you, but I get frustrated if I have to sit at a red light for too long. So I can't imagine um, living in a refugee camp for around 17 years and then, and then having to go through this process for up to three. The important thing to note about this process is that um, let's say a family of four is in a refugee camp and they begin this process. And then um, halfway through, they're at step six, halfway through, um, they have another child. They have a third child. They start all over because their family dynamic has changed. They're not the same family that they were when they started. Or if you and your spouse are applying and you um, are in separate interview rooms and the question is, when were you married? And one of you says, I was, we were married on March 20th of 1989 and your spouse says, we were married on, I can't remember the exact date, was it March 21st? I think it was March 21st. You're automatically kicked back to the beginning um, because um, that represents uh, in, in the United States' mind, in the State Department's mind, um, a security risk. So um, to say that this is a, an easy uh, process would um, be a um, gross um, misrepresentation. Um, this is, it's kind of hard to read, but um, I, I find it fascinating. So I was talking about that 125,000, that ceiling. So the presidential administration 
um, sets an annual admittance ceiling. Uh, as I said, this year it's 125,000. It has been 125,000 since 2021. Um, the, so that represents the blue line on the chart. The orange line is how many we actually welcomed into the United States. So you can see that um, there's some interesting trends here. Um, this was um, a significant Bosnian um, um, uh, influx. Um, and then round about 2001, we, that ceiling went almost to the lowest point it had. Um, and our actual admittance went even lower because of 9-11. Yeah, oh that. Um, and so it kind of, it kind of mainlined for a while and slowly crept back up. Um, and then you'll see, uh, and I, I need to say this too, um, none of my comments tonight are intended to be at all political. It is, it is entirely factual. So uh, the previous administration uh, lowered the ceiling and put in place um, several bans, travel bans for specific populations. Um, and so that ceiling tanked, as did um, the number um, that we actually resettled. You'll see then uh, it went way back up, uh, but the orange line kept going down. Why is that? Um, because um, because the previous administration was not refugee and immigrant friendly. Um, much of the infrastructure uh, for to have State Department officials in refugee camps to be able to process applications and things, that infrastructure was dismantled. And so the current administration has been rebuilding and that's been that slow increase that you, we talked about in one of those earlier slides where it was 11,000 and then 25,000 and then last year 67,000. So it's, it's creeping back up. Um, I, don't have a, I don't have a 2023 or 2024 number, but, but it, would, it would be going back up slowly. So any questions about that real quick? So um, locally, what does that look like for JVS? Um, those were, some, those were some, some national numbers. What does that look like for us? So I was just talking about the previous administration. Um, between, well, in 2021, um, we welcomed a total of 109 individuals. Um, we, and in 2020, uh, for, I think from 2016 to 2020, we welcomed a total of 120 individuals over four years? We being JVS. We being J the, my organi our organization. So last or in 21, we were at 109. If, we, if our chart went back further, you'd see probably 40, 30, and so on. Um, you can see in 2022, um, we jumped, I'm sorry, my laptop is right in the way, but that says 523. Um, and you'll see that a majority of that, as Sarah was mentioning, um, were our Afghan brothers and sisters. Um, and then this past year, we're on the federal fiscal year, and so our fiscal year ended September 30th. Um, so um, as of September 30th, we had welcomed 409 um, individuals. We are on track this year uh, to welcome over 600. So we're, we're, we're creeping back up too. Um, largest population that we are seeing currently is um, the Congolese 
community, um, but certainly pretty pretty equal representation um, among um, Iraq, Somalia, Syria, um, and then some Southern American countries. Questions? Are you, are you able, since, since you have such a long timeline between the start of the process and then the resettlement process, do you get a glance years in advance to understand where the people are, are coming from? It's a great. Does that uh, impact how you uh, prepare? It's a great. That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. So every year we meet, we work with the city of Kansas City and we work with the US government. Uh, and we let the federal government know after in consultation with the mayor uh, and other community partners, what once we determine what our bandwidth is um, to accept, um, we let the federal government know. And that that is determined by um, language um, expertise that we have. Um, I think currently at JVS, we have 37 languages represented. Um, so pretty extensive. Um, but also our, our capacity to, to handle certain medical cases, um, certain, certain um, educational cases. Um, so we let the federal government know that. And then the federal government says, that's great. And here's who we're really going to send you. Um, so we, we um, that's adorable. Uh, and here's who we're really going to send you. And um, you would think, Mike, that with all of that lead time, that we would know um, who's coming and when. We get about two or three months out, we get a listing of who we can expect over the next couple of months. But that doesn't mean that they're coming right away. They're still in that process. They're getting close, but they're still in that process. The federal government, if they are being generous, might give us two weeks notice. Um, on Tuesday of this week, we were notified um, that today we had two families of six coming. So we had 12 newcomers coming and we had two days notice. We had 48 hours notice. So um, it's a pretty quick turnaround and we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, just because it takes 20 years doesn't mean that we necessarily have the same lead time. Yeah. Yep. So it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, the the short answer to your first question is absolutely. There are there are significant populations already here. Um, we have a significant Congolese community uh, in the historic Northeast. Um, there is, the Afghan community has um, been slowly um, migrating north of the river to North Kansas City. Um, there's a significant Syrian community in Grandview. Um, so there are pockets. Um, when we are um, securing housing for families, um, it, their country of origin does determine where we try to place those folks because we don't want to, we, we, would, we would not want to put a Congolese family in Grandview where they don't know the language, share the culture, blah, blah, blah. Um, that said, 
I don't know if you've heard, there's a little bit of an affordable housing crisis <laughs> nationwide. And so um, a majority of the families that we do resettle initially, um, we have tried to resettle in the historic Northeast um, because the, the bus line up there is the most reliable, and that's loose, but it's the most reliable. Um, and there are um, some schools up there, some elementary and high schools that are uniquely equipped um, to work with refugee and immigrant populations. And so, um, and, and it is an incredibly culturally diverse part of town. Um, if you've not spent much time in the historic Northeast, I highly recommend it. There's some great restaurants and, and um, stores. Um, go to the Afghan market and get some samosas. Uh, it's, an, it's an amazing experience. Um, so we, there are pockets, but we try initially to resettle as many folks as we can up in the historic Northeast. That's becoming increasingly more challenging um, because it's a saturated area. There's, there's not um, much available housing. Um, and since certainly we can, we can talk for days about what defines affordable. Um, and we'll talk about why affordable is important to us in, in just a minute. Yeah. I don't, oh, I'm sorry. The boundaries of the historic, I don't know where that is. So, um, oh, let's see, 71 on the west side to essentially 435 on the east side um, from, um, mm, I'm trying to think of the southern. Um, essentially, like, um, yeah, Truman is probably a good, uh, it's a good uh, southern border, if you will, uh, and then the river. Yeah, yeah, a it's, a, it's a vast area, it's a big area. Yeah. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that because we have people watching online, um, they can't hear us if we don't use our microphones. So if you're going to ask a question or say something, please pick up your mic and there's, or, or raise your hand and either Jen or I will bring it to you. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, Don? Yeah, I noticed in the slide before, at least five of those line items are from South American or, or uh, Middle, Amer Middle mm -hmm. America, mm -hmm. uh, but the numbers are extremely small, and when we think migrants here in Kansas City, we think about the southern border and all the migrants who want in, where, why so are they not represented? It's a great question, and thank you for the opportunity to clarify. Um, these numbers represent legally defined refugees. So these are not migrants from the southern border. These are, I mean, they might live below the southern border, but their, their legal status is refugee. It is not asylum seeker or migrant. But, but aren't there a number of potential migrants on the southern border who are trying to get in legally? Absolutely. Well, why are Absolutely. They not represented then? They are um, because their status is not. You have to apply to be a, to receive refugee status. Um, the folks that we often hear about and see on the news uh, at the southern border um, would be considered migrants and or asylum seekers, and we work with those populations. They're just not represented. It, back when I. Um, was starting, I said we, we worked with around 6,500 individuals. The, those, that includes 
this 409, but it also includes um, around 170 unaccompanied minors and around 700 Cuban Haitians. So we are seeing those populations. They're just not, they're not represented here because this, this is just one of the spokes of that umbrella. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a great question. So um, when a refugee uh, comes to the United States, we, before they arrive, we know they're coming. Sometimes we have two days notice, sometimes we have 10. Um, we secure housing for them. Uh, we pick them up at the airport. And then the next morning, um, we begin their, their path to wholeness uh, by offering um, a extensive community integration program, workforce development, and health and wellness. Um, we're gonna talk about all of these areas. So these are the sorts of services that we offer um, to refugees when they arrive. We set up their home, we um, enroll them in public benefits, public assistance benefits. Um, they're immediately enrolled, they're automatically enrolled in um, Medicare or Medicaid, sorry. Um, and we enroll them in school, kiddos in school. I say all the time, it's, it's always back to school season at JVS. Um, so um, we help them find employment, secure employment. Um, we help folks learn how to ride the bus, which is important. Um, and then we do a series of community orientation classes and those classes focus on health and hygiene, safety, um, personal finances, um, um, employment, uh, how, to, how to change a light bulb, and, and what is a parent-teacher conference, you know? Um, so all of those things that you and I do uh, every day that we don't even think about, those are all new concepts uh, to, a, to a newly arrived refugee family. So um, we spend uh, a good deal of time helping integrate them. Um, so we, we utilize volunteers for housing setups. Uh, this is a really narrow, precarious stairway. And it looks like there's a really large flat screen television that's being hoisted up that. I, I'm, I'm going to assume it made it up to the top. Everyone made it to the top in one piece. Um, and different house, but this is one of the families um, waving from their, from their new front porch. So uh, when folks arrive, we pick them up at the airport with a welcome sign uh, and we take them, we hand them the key to their new home. Uh, and when they open the door to their home and turn on the light switch, there's a warm, culturally appropriate meal waiting for them there. Federal government lets us know and we get um, what's called biodata on them so we know what nationality they are we know the makeup of the family um, average family size that we're seeing these days is anywhere from six to eight um, it's rare to see individuals um, it's even rarer to see small families families of two or three um, it's it's most common that we see really large families And you said unaccompanied minors as well. Unaccompanied minors, yeah. And so we try um, with our unaccompanied minors, and again, those, so all those spokes, we work with all of those spokes. The services that we are federally able, federally, you know, equipped to, to offer differ based on someone's status. So an unaccompanied minor, for instance, um, receives different services than a refugee family, than an asylum family might, um, might receive, etc. Um, 
So as I mentioned, um, folks are enrolled in public benefits. Um, it is not uncommon for um, cases to uh, arrive with significant health issues. Um, that's one of the triggers or things that will move a family up in that, uh, in that extensive process is if somebody's got an un a significant underlying health issue, hypertension, diabetes, series of strokes, et cetera, um, that moves them up in the queue. Um, and so we, it is not uncommon um, when a family arrives, we, they go straight to the emergency room to receive the, the care that they're needing. Um, we certainly offer school support. Up in the historic Northeast, there is the Global uh, Academy and the Welcome Center. Um, the Global Academy is a great it's a great school because it allows for newly arrived refugee students to spend part of the day learning in their native language and the other part learning in English. So they'll spend the first part of their day at the Global Academy and, and they'll, they'll study in Swahili or whatever their, their uh, language of origin is. And then they'll go to their re regular school um, for the second half of the day where they'll um, learn English and, and continue their schooling. Certainly we do uh, training and job placement, um, and, and then there's the community orientation. Um, I wanna back up and tell you why all of these things are important. Um, we, we say all the time that the, the families that we see, the individuals that we see, they have mastered the surviving part, mm. clearly, right? Um, they've mastered that. For us, that is not good enough because you and I are doing more than surviving most days. So we... I'm, you know what, I'm not gonna, I, I don't wanna make that assumption because the refugees that we see uh, do. I mean, they, they are following a legal channel because if they're not following that legal channel, they're, they're kicked out. Um, so they've mastered the surviving, the tenacity, the grit. Um, they, they, they know how to be resilient. But for us, that's not good enough. We wanna move families from surviving to thriving. So, um, and so does the federal government. So the federal government um, <laughs> mandates that a newly arrived refugee family should be fully self-sufficient. So that means having a job, knowing the language, being able to get to, to and from work, uh, being able to support yourselves, should be fully self-sufficient within 90 days of arrival. Three months, three months. Um, so we recognize, so, th so there's, there's a sense of urgency that we have um, as a federal subcontractor to make sure that that happens. So I, I was mentioning, you know, the morning after a family arrives, we're going to their home, we're picking them up, we're bringing them back to JVS, and we're beginning the school enrollment, benefits enrollment, the, the job seeking. We're starting all of that immediately because we don't want, we don't want to be the reason that a family isn't reaching full self-sufficiency. We also recognize that three months is not realistic. Let's, I mean, for some individuals it is, but for a majority it is not. And so we um, do have some funding, that some federal and some not, that allows us to provide um, added financial support to families who are, um, they may 
have a job, but maybe it's pay below, paying below minimum wage, or, they, um, or they're having significant health issues that's keeping them from being able to secure a job. We have um, support, both federal and non, uh, to be able to, to help walk alongside families for up to eight months. So it gives us a little bit more time uh, to help them re reach that sufficient self-sufficiency. So can I assume that after 90 days, the federal government stops providing funds and it has to be a private venture? Oh. Yeah, yeah. And um, speaking of funding, we can talk about um, what each refugee receives from the federal government when they arrive. If a refugee family of four um, arrives in Kansas City, each person, regardless of age, each refugee um, is assigned $1,075, and that is to last them for 90 days, right? So again, if you're a family of four, you've got, you've got $4,200, $4,300 to last you those first three months. And we are required, as a federal subcontractor, we are required to automatically deduct from that $4,300 anything that we have spent to resettle that family. For instance, rent. That culturally appropriate warm meal, we don't do that just because we're nice people. We are nice people. And I, I wanna believe that we would do that anyway, but we are mandated to do that. We are mandated to provide a certain type of housing that has to meet certain criteria. And um, so, back to that affordable housing struggle, the more money we're paying for someone's rent, the less money they have to last them to buy groceries or school supplies or clothing or whatever. And so we, um, we rely heavily on the support of the community. So that $27,000 that you all just invested in JVS, guess how that's gonna get used? We're gonna be, we're gonna be supporting families um, in, their, in their initial resettlement um, to, again, move them from surviving to? Right. There you go. Um, uh, um, also, also another uh, fun fact about finances. Uh, a refu that refugee family of four, if they're coming from the Congo, they, and they arrive in Kansas City, they've probably stopped in, maybe they, maybe they had a stop in Europe somewhere, and then they stopped in Chicago, and then they made it to Kansas City. So a, a long, laborious journey, and not inexpensive. The federal government uh, it mandates that that family has five years to repay the federal government for the cost of their airfare to come to America. And that may seem like, oh, that's horrible. And, and, it's on, and on its face, we can argue whether it is or not, but essentially that those funds then get, are used to replenish the coffers so that more families can continue to come. So it's not that the federal government is necessarily being greedy, um, but they're trying to, to, to renew um, the, the pipeline um, to be able to, to bring additional people to Kansas City. So, uh, so again, I tell you all of these things to just make you stop when you, if you're listening to the news or you're reading the newspaper and you, and you, and you, or, and you hear something about refugees, uh, now you're able to kind of critically look or 
look at, at that information and go, hmm, that's interesting. That's different than what my new friend Lauren told me. And I'm going to investigate that. Where's your microphone? Microphone, microphone. Gosh. <laughs> She's like, I've technically got the microphone. Give it to me. I'm trying to talk into it. Is it financially realistic that a family who probably is not making significant amount of money to pay off air flight for four people within five years? Um, if they work with JVS, we're going to move them there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. I mean, we're dealing with human beings here. So, of course, there are going to be individuals who um, don't pay their rent. And what happens to you or I if we don't pay our rent? We get evicted. That does happen. It's, I mean, we don't want that to happen, and we try to do everything we can uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. But, but these are human beings just like, just like you and I. I think an important tenet of our work, too, um, the only choice that a newly arrived refugee family doesn't get to make for themselves is their first home, their first dwelling, because we have to do that before they arrive. And we have really unique, special, and, um, we, we, and important uh, relationships with landlords because um, we're asking landlords to, to write a 12-month lease for a family that isn't here, that doesn't have a job, you can't do a secure, you can't do a credit check on. They don't have a credit history. Um, they don't speak the language, and they're not. Landlord is not putting the um, the lease in our name. They're putting it in the name of the family. Um, and so, if if a family decides um, at month four or five that they they don't think they should have to pay rent and they choose not to pay rent, that is their choice. And so are, the, so are the consequences of that choice. Um, and so we want all of our clients, all of our, our refugee families, to have full autonomy and ownership of their decisions. So where the kids go to school, where the, where they, where the parents uh, end up working, um, where, what they do for f in their free time, how they handle their medical issues. We want all of that to be their choice. Um, and that can be ominous. Because if you've grown up in a refugee camp, you haven't gotten to make any decisions at all. Every decision has been made for you. And so the concept of uh, and the responsibility of having to make those choices can be daunting. Um, and so our job is to walk alongside folks and present the options. Here are the options you have, and here are the consequences of those options. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's a family's choice. Um, so our community orientation classes. So I wanted to switch gears just a little bit and talk um, about our consumer services department. So we have um, a full immigration department. Uh, I'm really proud to say that in 2023, we received funding to hire our very first immigration attorney on staff immigration attorney. Um, and we now have a paralegal with her as well. Um, and a majority of the work that she and, and our immigration team have been doing in 2023 was around processing asylum applications for our Afghan brothers and sisters. Um, and so I want to talk about our Afghan friends since, since that was initially how you all um, got connected with us. 
So in 2021, uh, Kansas City welcomed around 700 or so um, individuals from Afghanistan at JVS. We resettled around 400 of them. We had uh, 10 days notice that 400 people were coming. Um, that is not enough time to secure housing. Uh, and so we did have to put the, those hundreds of folks in, in an extended stay hotel um, up north of the river, um, but our staff stayed there too. Our executive director lived at the extended stay hotel along with um, our, our new neighbors. Um, so we were able to get, uh, able to get uh, those families into housing um, over a, about a month or so. Um, their status, we we're talking about sp spokes on that, in that umbrella. Um, the legal status of Ukrainians who, came, who have been, arrived since the war and the Afghans um, who left when the U.S. evacuated, their legal status is humanitarian parolee, which is an awful, I mean, obviously no one in marketing came up with that name because it's not at all awesome. Um, but they have what is called TPS, Temporary Protected Status. That temporary protected status lasts for two years. So folks came in November of 21, Round about summer of 2023, um, we started getting real nervous because the US government had not indicated that they were going to extend that TPS. They since have for another two years. What will happen when, because we do not anticipate that that TPS will be extended again, um, should that temporary protected status expire um, before an Afghan person has received a, an approved asylum application, then that Afghan person loses their work authorization. And so they're here with, again, no hope of being able to return home, but no prospect to be able to support themselves or their families here. Um, and so you may have heard in the news um, about um, a legislative bill called the Afghan Adjustment Act. We do a fair amount of, of advocacy work around that. Um, we had hoped it was in an omnibus package uh, and, and then it was in the National Defense Act package. At the end of 2023, it got pulled out for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm not optimistic. Uh, Washington can't seem to do much these days, and so I, I, I'm not optimistic that um, our Afghan brothers and sisters are high on the priority list, um, but they should be, um, because again, if, um, if, if, the, if their temporary status expires uh, and they don't have an approved asylum application, they lose their work authorization. The Afghan Adjustment Act would provide a permanent path to citizenship and it would also provide a pathway for their family members who are still in Afghanistan to come and join them in the United States. We have, I have four uh, Afghan colleagues at JVS and I, I feel, allow me, I'd love to tell you a little bit about uh, them. Um, Kasim was an award-winning journalist in Afghanistan embedded with U.S. troops. He works in our immigration department now, uh, and he has started, KCUR has invited him to be a contributing writer for them, and so if you see uh, Kasim's name, uh, that's him. That's him, and um, we're, uh, I'm delighted to call him not only a colleague, but a dear friend. Um, he's incredible. His wife um, is in Pakistan. His mother 
sister and um, some cousins and, and majority of his nieces and nephews are in Afghanistan, uh, and it is not safe for them there. Moment um, was um, uh, a high-ranking official in the Afghan military. He studied at the International Officers College at Fort Leavenworth in 2016 and 2017. Um, and so he spent a lot of time in this part of the country. Uh, so when he was able to evacuate, he knew immediately where he wanted to come in the United States. And because he was in the military, his family lived on base in Kabul, and so he was able to bring his wife and child, four kids here. Uh, and they live up north of the river, and um, Momin is the head of our workforce development team, so he helps newly arrived folks um, secure employment. Uh, Saba Woon was an interpreter embedded with U.S. troops. Uh, he was, and he also uh, works on our workforce development team. He was married uh, to his the love of his life, his wife, uh, in the morning, in some August morning, and he was on a plane out of Kabul in the afternoon without her. Um, she is in uh, Afghanistan, uh, and it is not safe. So um, we would love to be able to bring his wife here. Um, and then Hashmat, Hashmat was also an interpreter. Um, he's one of our case managers, and um, his wife and um, first child are still in Afghanistan. His first child was born months after he came to Kansas City. So he's never met um, his now two-year-old child. Um, so as Sarah was saying earlier, when you see numbers and statistics, I, I implore upon you, and I, I reiterate what Sarah said, there are people <laughs> connected to those numbers. Um, the, the Afghan community is not just a community of numbers, it's a community of really talented, smart, uh, dedicated individuals who have more love for America in their left pinky than I do in my whole body. Um, two Veterans Days ago, so not this past Veterans Day, but the Veterans Day before, Kasim was invited to speak at Veterans Day festivities at the World War I Museum. And he got up and gave a five minute, he preached for five minutes about how much he loves America and how proud he is to live in America and how every person in that auditorium should love America. And it was, it was so heartwarming because before he got up to speak, the room was full, auditorium was full of uh, veterans, including my husband, um, but in, sitting in front of us, in the row in front of us, were some Vietnam veterans. And you could tell they were doing the whole, who's that guy, what's he doing, why is he here, what's he gonna, what's, what's his story? They were the first ones to give him a standing ovation when he finished. So um, again, there are people associated with, with all of these numbers. Um, thank you for letting me digress and go on a little bit of a tangent, immigration. So uh, we have a full, back to the slide, uh, we have a full immigration team and, and our immigration team works with anyone um, needing immigration services, whether that's if you want a change of status, if you want to bring your family here, um, if you um, need to apply for asylum. Uh, our immigration team is fully staffed uh, and, and, and does that. It is a fee-based service, um, however, for um, what you would, what an, an outside uh, immigration attorney would charge, we, we charge um, maybe a tenth of that. Um, and we certainly work with, with families uh, to, to, you know, work out payment. We're not, we're, we're concerned about, about serving them, less concerned about the 
the, the money part of it. Uh, language and cultural services. So um, this year we launched, this year, 2023, we launched an English for citizenship curriculum. So um, individuals who um, are on a path to naturalization and are getting ready to take the exam um, but need to brush up on their English, they do so by using the, the, the curriculum the naturalization curriculum as their study guide. Um, and so that's a that's a, a fabulous course. And then we have um, a certified community interpreter training. So for folks in the community like you or I, um, if you speak a second language and you and you want to become a certified interpreter, we offer uh, a, a course um, to help you become certified. And then our interpretation and translation services, I told you we I think on staff we have about 37 languages represented. Um, we work with the school district. We work with the city of Kansas City. Um, we work with other nonprofit agencies and, and um, health centers pr to provide uh, interpretation and translation services. And then this is my favorite slide. Um, this is the economic impact that refugees and immigrants, so now I'm talking about everybody in that umbrella here in Kansas City. There are um, upwards of 150,000 immigrants and refugees in Kansas City who contribute $1.3 billion in tax revenue and then you know, uh, an untold uh, amount um, more in, in spending. Of that 150,000, 11,000 of those folks are entrepreneurs. They own businesses, they have restaurants, um, and refugees and immigrants are 48% more likely to start a business than you or I, which I find fascinating. Um, and then this last bullet, um, I, wanna, I wanna just kind of close with this. Um, remember at the beginning of our time together, I was telling you about the young woman um, from Nigeria who was told to come to Kansas City. Uh, this is why. Kansas City, has a reputation for being a welcoming city. That is different than, and I don't want to confuse the two, that's different than a sanctuary city. So that is not, that's not what we're talking about. Being a welcoming city is a, is a certification that we are currently applying for um, that would demonstrate that we have the economic uh, infrastructure, the workforce infrastructure, the transportation, schooling, all, language access, all of the things that make Kansas City a, a, a place where our, um, our new families can not survive but yeah, awesome. Um, and as a part of that um, accreditation that Mayor Lucas formed back in October, uh, the Mayor's Commission for New Americans. Uh, JVS has a seat at that table, uh, and it's comprised of maybe six or eight uh, organizations and individuals um, who will be working um, with the city and, and um, with the chamber to address any of the issues that would keep us from becoming a welcoming city. So for instance, um, you know, everybody talks about how, how unreliable the, the mass transit system is in Kansas City. That's one of the things that the commission is gonna be taking on and dealing with. Um, if there are um, other barriers to someone being able to thrive here, uh, the commission's gonna, gonna address that. Uh, and we, I think we submit the application for to become a, a welcoming city next month. Um, so 
send all your good vibes and prayers. <laughs> it is a, it's, a, it's a laborious process. We've been working on it for over a year. Um, and it's a five-star rating, and I think you basically have to be uh, like the Garden of Eden to be five. Um, I think we're aiming for maybe two or three initially um, with the hope of, of moving up. So um, you all are a part of, of, being, of us being, being able to call ourselves a welcoming city, so thank you um, for the ways. You don't even know um, how you are affecting um, the lives of our newcomers, but every time you smile at somebody that doesn't look like you in the grocery store, um, every time you don't get irritated because the person in front of you at in the line is speaking another language, um, you're a part of being um, that welcoming city. And so, again, on behalf of the thousands of individuals that we serve, our board, um, our staff, um, I, I thank you. And I, I will just tell you about our, our staff. Um, we are ramping up for that 125,000. Uh, about 18 months ago, we were before, right before I, I joined JVS, our staff size was about 45. Right now, we're almost at 100. Um, so we've almost doubled in size. Um, we've outgrown our space, so that means we've had to extend into some satellite locations. Um, so ultimately, we would love to um, find a location that's in closer proximity to the families we, we resettle, um, which would be in the historic Northeast. But um, you know, if any of you know of any uh, places that it could accommodate 90 staff, a warehouse, and, and maybe have some affordable housing uh, to go along with it. That would be, you know, uh, I, I'd be happy to take, to buy you lunch. Um, uh, absolutely. Ab yes, I am not above that. I am not above that. Um, and so, um, and our staff, I'm proud to say that about 40% of our staff are uh, former clients. Um, or individuals who identify as refugees. So um, that speaks volumes, I think, um, to the quality of our, our care um, because former clients want to work at JVS for one of two reasons. Either they had a really positive experience and they want others to have that same positive experience or they had a challenging experience and they want to be a part of fixing that for somebody else. Um, either way, uh, it is a, it is a humbling honor uh, to get to work alongside um, those individuals every day. Um, we have a, a general board of directors, um, but we also have a young professionals board. And you all, I don't know if you knew this, but you have a young professionals board member in your midst. Uh, Sarah is one of our new young professional board members. Uh, so Sarah stuck with us, um, uh, and um, I am, I'm just so excited um, to get to work more with Sarah this year, and hopefully uh, you all. At the back table, I have left a couple of things. If you'd like more information, if you'd like to get receive our monthly newsletter, um, and we send out events and national updates, local updates on all these things. If you want to join our mailing list, feel free to, to provide your information. If you're interested in volunteering, and that can be a one-time thing, uh, or it can be a, a, a more long-term, or it can be a really deep dive where we match you with a family for six months. Um, if, there, if you have a passion and an interest, I guarantee we can find a way uh, to, to um, 
to utilize it at JVS. Also, um, it, we're getting ready for our first big snow of the season, and so it feels appropriate to tell you that um, we are constantly in need of um, not only household items, but winter wear. Um, many of our clients come from those warm weather uh, countries, and so we had individuals in August asking for winter coats um, because it was already getting to be too cold for them. And so, and when families are arriving, they're coming in flip-flops and a sarong. Um, and so, if we can take a coat to the to the to the airport, um, it they're all the better for it. Um, so, if you're cleaning out your your closet. Um, please think of JVS, we would be honored uh, to utilize um, your, your, um, your items. Uh, any questions? I've thrown a ton of information at you. Any questions? Hi, get your microphone, get your mic, I don't want Susan to yell at you, get your microphone. Turn it on. There you go, there you go, turn it on, yep. Two questions. Yeah. What happens to the children, unaccompanied children, when they come to JVS? Oftentimes, there is a, um, there's an extended family or a, or a sponsor here. Um, they don't go in the foster system. No. Okay. No. 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 We'll, we'll, if we're seeing an unaccompanied minor, they have a, a U.S. tie here. Okay. Yeah. Whether that's a family member or a, an acquaintance of some kind. Yeah. And the other thing, um, I'm assuming on many of these people are, are, mm -hmm neighbors have yeah. um post-traumatic stress disease oh my gosh yes is there does jbs help that or do Absolutely. they go to a psychologist which they don't take money i mean they don't take we, insurance um, it's a great question um yes we have a, a full um health social work team uh, and so we do intensive case management because you're exactly right it is it is it would be uncommon for someone to not come with with trauma Absolutely, absolutely, and and that can be anything from um, uh, I'm 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 in love with your dog. Your dog is uh, your dog. I want to take your if your dog goes missing, it's because it's in my car. Um, I I want to take your dog home. Um, but if if one of our clients was here, they would be deathly afraid of of your pup. Um, so it can be something as seemingly innocuous as that, or it can be. Um, some people, you physically can't be touched. You know, it's it's um, it's too too traumatic to even touch them. Um, so yes, we have a full um, full social work team and and great community health partners in Children's Mercy, um, University Health, and Samuel Rogers. Yeah. I have a question for the audience. Good, good. Um, how many of you have a family member or a loved one who was a refugee? One, two. No more than three generations back. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Wow. That's pretty good. There you go. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I didn't mention this earlier when I was reading the, the legal definition of a refugee. Um, you might have noticed because it wasn't, it wasn't on, any, it wasn't on anyone's mind in 1951. Um, climate is not included in the legal definition. Um, and so currently, um, 
a person fleeing their country for climate issues is not eligible for refugee status, I anticipate that in my lifetime that will change. I, well, there's that, but yeah, we can have cocktails and talk about the climate too, but, um, but I would anticipate that probably within my lifetime, um, which isn't, I mean, uh, we've only got a few more decades <laughs> to get it done, I would imagine um, that um, climate refugees will become a, a legal status as well. You've asked some remarkable questions. I hope, though, that... Um, you, you leave with some questions and you leave with some curiosity. Um, not that you're going to go home and Google all of this, but I hope that you're, you're um, hope you know maybe a little bit more than when you got here tonight and that it might inform how you watch the news and how you have conversations with your friends and family. Um, I remind my friends and my family all the time um, when, when comments are, when unkind comments are made about the umbrella. <laughs> um, I, I remind folks, um, rather than disliking or, or, or hating the refugee, um, dislike the country that caused them to be a refugee. So the, the journey, that 20, 17 to 20 year journey that folks are on, is never anyone's first choice. No one is sitting around in the Congo and saying, you know what, what are you doing next week? Let's pack up all of our earthly belongings that we can carry on our back and let's walk to Tanzania and then let's spend a couple of decades in a refugee camp in the hopes that we might do better somewhere. No one, no one is choosing that as their first uh, path. Um, and so again, the desperation, <laughs> um, but the tenacity, the grit, the resilience, the patience um, that our clients uh, share with us um, is remarkable and, um, and uh, I wish I had a tenth of it uh, in my body. Um, I would invite any of you, anytime Susan and Sarah know that our door is always open, come anytime. We'd love to give you a tour, uh, introduce you to some of our staff, you could meet some clients, um, see where the magic happens. Um, it is a magical place uh, and um, it is magical because of all of you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, one more, one more. <laughs> I'm just recommending a book that I read. It's um, Beekeeper of Aleppo, and mm. it describes a family who, and a child, individual child, mm -hmm. on his journey to yeah. become a refugee status. So please, it's an awesome book. Uh, there's also a movie that, it came out a couple of years ago called The Swimmers. It's about two Syrian sisters. Isn't that good? Yeah, who are swimmers, and they, they leave Syria, they leave their family behind, they leave Syria in hopes of making it to Europe so that they could swim uh, in the Olympics, and um, it's a... And they do. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The middle of the movie's the best part. The middle of the movie's the best part, so we didn't give any of that away. Um, I'll hang around. Uh, afterwards, so please don't hesitate. I'd love to visit further. Uh, my card is back there, and then also, um, you are all um, our our 
partners in crime now, uh, I invite you to take a little globe with you. This is seed paper. So um, take it home, tear it up, and plant it uh, in your kitchen window. Uh, and when the wildflowers go, you can be reminded of the refugees and immigrants that you have helped welcome. So thank you. Thank you.